Welcome to the Voice of Conservative Values with Daniel Bobinski of True Idaho News and Uncover DC. Brought to you by conservativesof.com. And now, here's Daniel. Hello and welcome to the Voice of Conservative Values. My name is Daniel Bobinski, editor of TrueIdahoNews.com and a regular contributor to UncoverDC.com. Uh, regular listeners to this show know that we talk about the values needed to conserve the principles upon which our founders stood when they created this country. And that's because I believe it's very dangerous for our society when people forget those values and principles. So with that, let me start today by asking a rhetorical question, such as what happens when a country's people believe that the troubles that are popping up all around them are going to fade away and that things are going to return to normal? Hmm. Well, our guest today is going to address that question because she was an eyewitness to what happened in Venezuela in the 1980s, the 1990s, when that country descended from being a thriving free market economy, the richest country in South America, dove down into a Marxist society where poverty rates soared, a corresponding increase in violence, all sorts of crazy things happening there. We're going to hear about how the parallels uh, between that country and our country today are a little bit scary. Um, and someone who was there to witness it, I want to welcome to our program someone who I'm proud to call a friend, Dr. Vicki Wool. Well, hi, Daniel. Thank you so much for having me. It's a pleasure to have you here. Now, over the past year, I've gotten to know you. And I need to tell our audience, first off, you are a woman of God. <laughs> you are after God's heart. And you really want people to hear about Jesus. I do, Daniel. I love him with all my heart. Very true. Um, but the reason I have you on the show today is because you were talking about this very, what I call an unsettling parallel between what happened in Venezuela and what's happening in America today. And so you were a student, a medical student in Caracas. You saw it firsthand. But before we get into all that, Please tell us your background, your formal education, and what ended up taking you to Venezuela. Sure, I would love to. Uh, so I finished a, a bachelor's of science at UCLA in biochemistry, went on to a master's of public health, was working on my PhD in public health at UCLA when we uh, decided to go to Venezuela. The plan was to do research and do it abundantly, and then come back to the United States and become a professor. Well, it didn't turn out that way. I actually ended up applying to medical school, and it was through the grace of God that I got in. I think I was the second student that was ever uh, admitted there from the United States. Mm. And um, I did finish and did well, uh, and then I returned to the United States. That's the abbreviated version of the 10 years that I was there from 1986 to 1996. My background when I got my background since I've come to the back to the United States is uh, I passed the medical boards and I became board certified in family medicine. I moved to Idaho after a residency in Texas and started my own practice. Well, I was part of a group and then I left that group and I started my own practice in 2006. And so I've been here ever since. Through the Lord's guidance, um, I got involved in medical politics and have been pretty active for the last 16 years. When you say medical politics, what does that mean? Well, I first started uh, with being on the board of the Ada County Medical Society, and then from there went to the Idaho Medical Association for six years as a 
representative to the American Medical Association for six years. Hmm. So I got my feet wet in both state and, well, local and uh, national politics. Joined a group of the uh, National Physicians Council for Healthcare Policy. So I was on Capitol Hill. And now I'm part of a grassroots physician coalition moving uh, moving medicine or, Hmm. you know, trying to save what we possibly can. Hmm. So it's been a very interesting journey watching the systematic destruction of medicine in the United States. And and that's kind of what you saw down in Venezuela, too. This is why you're trying to warn people about what's going on. So let's go back to Venezuela in 1986. You're down there. You're going to be studying for this PhD. I think you said in epidemiology was going to be the focus. Um, you end up, I believe, getting pregnant, which kind of changed your plans. What was Venezuela like when you got down there? Well, Venezuela's been historically a very rich country. I mean, they've got wild natural resources, gas, uh, the petroleum, gold, aluminum, hydroelectric power. Hmm. I mean, people were very wealthy. They would go to Car- uh, they would go they would leave from Caracas and go to Miami for the weekend. And most of the people were just incredibly happy. Uh, it started to change. Politics changed. There was some corruption in the government. The Standard of living started to decline. Prices started to increase. And uh, the products just became scarcer and scarcer to get into Venezuela. So that's when I was first down there. We were just at the very beginning of that crunch. Um, when I went, there were five bolivares for dollar, which a, means... A bolivar is... The, the national money is a bolivar. Okay. And there were five of them. So it was about 20 cents. Each bolivar was about the equivalent of 20 American cents. And... It quickly escalated as uh, as things became more and more scarce uh, to get. This wasn't overnight. We were all asleep. We didn't realize what was happening. And I know that if you know the Venezuelans really understood where their country was going to be this number of years later, they would have fought like heck to change things. Mm. So it was it wasn't a rapid change with suddenly. Ta-da, we're going to be changing. It was this slow increase of in- inflation. Uh, you, I remember you saying that the uh, the number of the exchange rate for the Bolivarians went, went uh, up rather, rather substantially over time. Let me paint you a little picture. So there were shortages that we started to, to notice. Um, my husband and I moved to the interior of the country and there were shortages. So you couldn't find sugar, for example. You, there was nothing sugar. I mean, you couldn't find it granulated. You couldn't find it in a can. You just couldn't find it. And that's really tough when you're making food and mm-hmm. meals. And so it passed, I don't know, two months, three months, and people started clamoring. We need more. We need sugar. We need sugar. And the Government said, oh, okay, well, we'll raise the price. Hmm. And now, all of a sudden, it was available. Same thing happened with tomato products. You couldn't find a can of tomato sauce, ketchup, anywhere. And if you're Italian, we're making any kind of a <laughs> pasta. <laughs> makes it a little tough. So the same thing happened. And then all of a sudden, they showed up, and the prices were increased. So this gradual increase came as a result of the government meddling in price controls, which Mm -hmm. is a big, huge red flag for me when I start seeing price controls and people talking about, well, we need to limit somebody's prices. That's interesting because um, that actually happened in the medical arena here when uh, Donald Trump was president, when he decided to adjust the prices of insulin 
And that right there, I mean, some of my friends are saying, wait a minute, that's all a great thing. We've got lower pr insulin prices, but this is the government getting involved in price controls. Is that something that you're concerned about? Absolutely. And that, that raised a flag to me. But the bigger question, Daniel, is why can't other companies make insulin? This is not that tough. Mm. Why don't we have the production available in the United States? when in fact most of our medications come imported from China. Hmm. Same thing happened in Venezuela. They imported everything. They imported their canned goods. They imported all their products. And when things got tighter, there was less importation. Well, they didn't, in, they didn't invest in the infrastructure or they destroyed the infrastructure. So they weren't growing their own food. They weren't opening their own plants. What's happening here? Hmm. We're importing a lot. Or things are starting to decrease. People are starting to see the, the scarcity on the shelves. And we're uh, having problems with production and distribution. Yeah, it's getting that way. It really is. The inflation happened. I saw something um, in, in just the other day in the uh, newspaper where they say, expect a long row of inflation for the next couple of years in America. You were telling me that the that the... Money exchange rate in Venezuela did that too. Tell us a little bit more about what happened with that. Crazy. We bought a car. It cost $1,000. It was a Rambler Hornet. And it was a 1986 brown and it had a yellow stripe. <laughs> it was for $1,000. And I drove that car for 10 years. I drove it so the windows were broken, <laughs> the tires were bald. It could barely get up a hill because the engine was just shot. <laughs> And I sold it for $1,000. Wow. Clamor people clamoring to get it. So that was after 10 years. You know, the, the Bolivar went from 5 to 50 to 100. And so, so much so, Daniel, that when I left and that difference happened, after that, actually, there have been three different times that I know of that they've actually had to scrap their money and rename it. Hmm. So it was like million Bolivares for a dollar, you know, two million Bolivares for a dollar. And then they scrapped it, they made a new name, and then you start it all over again. That's the same kind of inflation that Germany experienced at the end of World War II. When it, I, I'm reading stories, we, people needed, you know, so much money just to buy a loaf of bread. Uh, it's kind of crazy like that. And we see that happening here too, where the prices are going up and different areas. And, and it's kind of like what you described. It's happening slowly. We're kind of being weaned into it. It's going to hit. And it's there's nothing like going to the store and spending, for example, $1.50 on a quart of milk. And then three weeks later, it's $1.75. And then two more weeks, it's two fifty. And then by the end of a year, it's you're paying $5 for that quart of milk. Now you're earning the same wages. So what ends up happening is that as the inflation goes up, the scarcity of the products increases. You know, you've got more people that are dependent on government handouts. Um, you've got less people that are actually working. You've got um, what in Venezuela they call a cesta, cesta basica, which means it's a, it's a basic food cost for a family of four, husband, wife, two kids. And that the poverty level just continued to increase and increase. Well, what happens when you have increasing poverty? You have conflict, you have disruption, people are unhappy, they start to protest. We had protests at the university. 
where actually we found out that a lot of those protests were staged by the government. They were hired hands to be what we call encapuchados. You know, you know, as you're as you're saying this, Vicky, I'm like, oh my gosh. This is what we're seeing in America today. This is this is the exact parallel. We're seeing the unrest. We're seeing the riots, the the, the, the gathering of the crowd, and the government supporting it. We have police chiefs being told to stand down and let them riot by the town's mayors, the city's mayors. So we're getting the that unrest. We're getting that violence, and it's becoming a norm. And and you experienced that. Uh, you were telling me some amazing stories that that just made my jaw drop. <laughs> I don't know which story to ask you to tell because there's so many of them and, and we don't have as much time as I would like. But, but you know, it's like you were also telling me that you were traveling and, and I used to travel a lot, um, going through the airports and seeing these fancy airports. I mean, I at least love to go through Minneapolis, right? Minneapolis, St. Paul had the nicest airport uh, when I was traveling so much. And now you say when you go through there, it's kind of a, it's all run down. I've not been there in about uh, probably six or seven years. What's it like now? Denver. Denver is embarrassing. I mean, there are big rips in the carpet. The floors are dirty. Um, Los Angeles. I mean, you don't even want to really go into the restroom at LAX. So it's it's decreasing people. It's decreasing the standard. What we're what they're doing is they're altering our culture. They're changing our history. They're erasing it. They're changing our mentality. They're decreasing our expectations. They're turning up the water or the heat in the pot that has the frog in it. Mm. And so, it you know, it, yes, they were. There was a slow decline until the coup. So Chavez was behind. What I this is a point I want to make. Chavez was behind this coup. He was actually in jail when he did it. it was 1992, and he did his second coup. It changed everything. I hitchhiked to a clinic. I told you that story about working day and night. People were looting like crazy, and tell tell our listeners that story that that how you you woke up and and your, your friend called you and, and pick it up from there. I was supposed to go to the university to go to to go to classes, and she uh, Nordy called me and she just said, "Chama, que no te vayas a la universidad." And like girlfriend, don't go to the university. I'm like, why? She goes, look out the window. I looked out the window, there wasn't a car, there wasn't a carito, which is a little buses, there wasn't anything, nobody on the street. I went, what is going on? And she said, we're under attack, we're in a coup. They're bombing the center of Caracas. And I went, oh my gosh, I, I, I didn't have my daughter with me. And I went, I got to get to the clinic. So I walked down to the freeway, which was probably about three quarters of a mile. I hitchhiked a ride. They dropped me off in a really lousy part of town. It's called Avenida San Martin. And people were lifting up the gates to the stores and looting. They were breaking the chains off. They were breaking the locks off. They were going in, carrying out televisions, shoes, food, whatever the abasto, whatever the store had. Mm. And they, they were, they, it was everywhere. And it was like 7.30 in the morning. And I went, I got to get out of here. So I hitchhiked. I walked up to another street. In order to get to the clinic, I had to go through a tunnel. I got another ride with a guy who was in who was driving, had a woman in front seat. I climbed in the back. I said, can you take me to the clinic? I want to volunteer. I want to go. I work there. And they said, sure. Well, he got to the middle of the tunnel and he turned off his car. Hmm. And I went, whoa, what's going on? So they rolled down the windows and you can hear, pew, pew. I went, oh my gosh, where are we? As a man comes, comes to the window of the car and he says, who are you? And 
they both look at me and they go, she's a doctor. She's got to get to the clinic. I went, oh, and he goes, come with me. And then I realized he was an undercover cop. And so I got out of the car. I ducked down behind an old beat up Volkswagen, listening to this gunfire. And um, I'm thinking, okay, I'm invisible. I don't like bullets. I'm just going to, you know, <laughs> and he gets me on the back of his little motorcycle. We cross over the center divider of the freeway and he takes me and he drops me off at the clinic. I found out that day, November 27th, 1992, the Metropolitan Police and the National Guard were massacring the prisoners in that jail or that in that prison it was called the Reten de Katia mm. and um, there are d- differing reports on how many people were actually massacred but the police were in there killing the prisoners and that was kind of a turning point in the in the country it was it was I worked all day all night the last patient that came in was pregnant um, took a bullet to the back why she was out on the street at two o'clock in the morning I have no idea but she was had no vital signs. We took her up to OR, removed a baby that was dead, mm. and we were hoping that it was still alive. And uh, then I caught a guy rifling through the surgeon's pockets in the room where they had changed into their scrubs because he was stealing from them. Just a total descent into craziness. And I, I, we, we see that happening in places like with Seattle when they did that uh, that. Chaz slash chop place where they kind of walled everything off. And that was just one really crazy, violent little section of Seattle. And here we had the the mayor of Seattle defending their right, quote unquote, to do this. And so what you're saying is that we're kind of on the same path of this kind of stuff happening here in the States. So that was the slow up until the fast. The coup is what did it. And we went right into martial law. Electricity was turned off for many hours during the day. Don't we have electrical outages now? Mm. Water was turned on only a couple times a day. And then when it did, it was dirty and it was sputtering out. So they controlled us. They closed all the banks. You couldn't remove any money at all. Businesses closed. I mean, now because of this whole COVID, we have 20% of our private, of our independent businesses are closed forever. Mm-hmm. More to people than ever are dependent on the government right now. And then there's violence. And, and when people get hungry and they get frustrated, there's more death. So, um, so yes, these changes are going crazy, and uh, they're not going to stop. So you're working as a doctor in Venezuela. Um, you're working in the barrios. You're working, like I said, at the clinic here during this coup. What were some of the people's attitudes that you observed when you were doing rotations and things like that? You know, when you get a people that are demoralized because they can't make ends meet, they can't feed their kids, the violence is so high, it's really, um, it's heart-wrenching. I had this woman come in and I was evaluating her baby. Her baby was really dehydrated and was really pretty sick, had sunken fontanelles, sunken eyes, wasn't crying very much. And I was evaluating, knowing that the baby needed to be hospitalized, um, I looked at the mom and the mom was just detached. And I, I didn't understand. And I just said, you kind of seem like you don't care, but your baby's really sick. And I said, it might even die. And she looked at me, she goes, oh, what does it matter? I'm just going to go home and get raped and I'll have another one again. Mm. So we don't understand. What despondency. We don't understand. 
We do not see it, but we have a long way to fall, and we're free-falling right now. I, I think you're right about that. I, I think they, they're doing such a great job with this um, disinformation campaign, I think is a good way to say it. And, um, and it's, it's kind of what I like talking with you because you keep saying we need to repent and come back to God because he's the only person that can you know, bring us back. And really, that is so true. Uh, by the way, if you're just tuning in, we're listening. We're talking with Dr. Vicki Wool about her experiences in Venezuela and uh, how it parallels to what's happening in America today. But we really do need to bring things back to God, don't we? Daniel, it's the only way. When I came back to this country in 1996, you know, the first thing I did, I went into a grocery store and I cried. I was in the middle of the aisle and I cried. I could not believe how many things were on the shelves. And I'd never, I mean, I was living a level of poverty that I can describe to you some other time. And then I looked around and I was so grateful. And I said, it was just one of these, I don't know, words of knowledge, whatever. And it was like, oh my gosh, the United States has 20 years. And I just knew it. I knew that I knew. And that 20 years was up in 2016. We're now in 2021. We have, um, you know, questionable elections. And if this person who's currently holding the position of the United States is not the duly elected, then aren't we in effect? Is that the definition of a coup? Mm. You know, if you look at our rights that we're giving away and handing out, even on a state level, and that the governors are... Anyway, um, so yes, we need to turn back to God. And I believe that with all my heart, uh, that it has to begin with repentance, but true repentance. There are a lot of people that have called us to pray. We, I've been praying and leading a prayer group now for years, but we need to repent. And God says, if my people who are called by my name humble themselves, seek my face, pray, Turn from their wicked ways. Turn from their wicked ways, but his people, we're not going to get a 100% here, mm-hmm. doesn't matter. Then he'll heal our land. And I, I, you know, I hear a lot of prophecies that that's exactly what God wants to do is heal our land. But we got to turn back to him. And mm-hmm. we have to just really say, Lord, we have messed up big time. We've been prideful. We've shut up when we shouldn't shut up. We've allowed things to happen in our government when we, the people, are the ones that are really in charge, the mm-hmm. buck stops with us. Mm-hmm. And it, it stops um, with believers, I think, because that's what uh, our our founders said. I mean, I, I, regular listeners to this show know, know that I offered this quote from John Adams quite a bit uh, as sitting president when he wrote to the uh, Massachusetts militia and said that our Constitution was made for a moral and religious people wholly unsuitable to the government of any other. And uh, that, that word religious at the time was a synonym for Christian denomination, right? So we're talking about Christians here. And that's what the Constitution was made for. So we really need to be focused on God and say, okay, this is yours. We can't do this. <laughs> it's like Jesus, take the wheel. <laughs> Can I uh, share what happened with Abraham Lincoln? Please. So Abraham Lincoln called for a day of, it was, things were not going well with the Civil War, Civil War at all. And Abraham Lincoln called for a day of humiliation, fasting, and prayer. And it took place on an April 30th, and the people stopped, humbled themselves, fasted, and prayed. 
And two days later, there was an infantryman who got a little confused, and he actually shot. It was a fatal wound to Colonel Stonewall Jackson, and he died. That next battle was a battle of Gettysburg, and the Union won. But we probably wouldn't have had things been different. Mm. So God answers these prayers, and God wants to choose mercy instead of judgment, but he's been very clear that we're entering and are in judgment. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, I think that's that Billy Graham quote. You know, if if um, if we don't uh, get judged by God, he's going to have to apologize to Sodom and Gomorrah. But our America has turned its back on God, and we need to, as you said, His people, the believers, need to humble ourselves and pray and seek His face and turn from our wicked ways. And, and you think about the wording of that, seeking His face. You know, He's like looking up. And, you know, it's like the scripture says when God says, I guide you with my eye. It's like, okay, I'm, I'm watching you, God. <laughs> Just lead me and, and direct me. Like I said, we've been talking with uh, Dr. Vicki Wool. And, and Vicki, you have so much more to share. And I wish we had more time because people really need to know that we are in danger as a country and that we do need to turn back to God. We've got about um, 30 seconds left. Do you have anything that uh, you want to just cover real quick before we take off? I just really appreciate this opportunity, and um, I would ask the people to um, pray and prayerfully consider all of these and pray for truth so that you can get away from a lot of the narratives that you're seeing and hearing, because it's not the truth. Mm. Amen to that. There's kind of a a woke and an awake. <laughs> so it's kind of like time to wake up. Uh, Dr. Vicki Wool, it has been an absolute pleasure having you on the show. Thank you for taking the time to talk with us. Thank you so much, Daniel. It's great to see you. And uh, to the listening audience, thank you for tuning in. Uh, you have been listening to The Voice of Conservative Values, sponsored by conservativesof.com. And if you want to visit that website, uh, you can make a donation to support the promotion of Judeo-Christian values in our culture. And they are also the people who sponsor this show. And of course, if you want to hear any of our past shows, you can visit 941thevoice.com. So that's 941thevoice.com. And just check the archives for the Voice of Conservative Values. Again, this is Daniel Bobinski uh, with the Voice of Conservative Values. Thank you very much for listening. Until the next time, be blessed. Thank you for tuning in to The Voice of Conservative Values. If you'd like to support this broadcast and Conservatives Of in the Treasure Valley, you can do so at conservativesof.com. Freedom can only be maintained by a prayerful, informed, vigilant, and engaged citizenry.